Chapter Fourteen of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Fourteen: The Campaign Against Sheridan. According to Grant's design, Sheridan left his base at Harper's Ferry on August 10, 1864, and started up the Shenandoah Valley. Grant's main object was to cut Lee's line of communication with the southwest, for, if this were accomplished, the inevitable result would be the fall of Richmond and the end of the war. It was immaterial whether Sheridan secured this result by defeating Early, who was defending the valley, in battle, or by pushing him south by flank movements. During this campaign of 1864, my battalion of six companies was the only force operating in the rear of Sheridan's army in the Shenandoah Valley. Our rendezvous was along the eastern base of the Blue Ridge, in what is known as the Piedmont region of Virginia. Fire and sword could not drive the people of that neighborhood from their allegiance to what they thought was right, and in the gloom of disaster and defeat they never wavered in their support of the Confederate cause. The main object of my campaign was to vex and embarrass Sheridan, and, if possible, to prevent his advance into the interior of the state. But my exclusive attention was not given to Sheridan, for alarm was kept up continuously by threatening Washington and occasionally crossing the Potomac. We lived on the country where we operated, and drew nothing from Richmond except the gray jackets my men wore. We were mounted, armed, and equipped entirely off the enemy, but, as we captured a great deal more than we could use, the surplus was sent to supply Lee's army. The mules we sent him furnished a large part of his transportation, and the captured sabres and carbines were turned over to his cavalry. We had no use for them. I believe I was the first cavalry commander who discarded the sabre as useless and consigned it to museums for the preservation of antiquities. My men were as little impressed by a body of cavalry charging them with sabres as though they had been armed with cornstalks. In the Napoleonic Wars, cavalry might sometimes ride down infantry armed with muzzle-loaders and flintlocks, because the infantry would be broken by the momentum of the charge before more than one effective fire could be delivered. At Eilau, the French cavalry rode over the Russians in a snowstorm because the powder of the infantry was wet and they were defenseless. Fixed ammunition had not been invented. I think that my command reached the highest point of efficiency, as cavalry, because they were well armed with two six-shooters, and their charges combined the effect of fire and shock. We were called bushwhackers, as a term of reproach, simply because our attacks were generally surprises, and we had to make up by celerity for lack of numbers. Now. I never resented the epithet of bushwhacker, although there was no soldier to whom it applied less, because bushwhacking is a legitimate form of war, and it is just as fair and equally heroic to fire at an enemy from behind a bush as a breastwork, or from the casemate of a fort. The Union cavalry who met us in combat knew that we always fought on the offensive in a mounted charge, and with a pair of Colt's revolvers. I think we did more than any other body of men to give the Colt pistol its great reputation. 
a writer on the history of cavalry, cites as an example of the superiority of the revolver, a fight that a squadron of my command, under Captain Dolly Richards, real name Adolphus E. Richards, had in the Shenandoah Valley, in which more of the enemy were killed than the entire total by sabre in the Franco-Prussian War. But to be effective, the pistol must, of course, be used at close quarters. As I have said, during this campaign our operations were not confined to this valley. The troops belonging to the defences of Washington and guarding the line of the Potomac were a portion of Sheridan's command. To prevent his being reinforced from this source, I made frequent attacks on the outposts in Fairfax and demonstrations along the Potomac. The 8th Illinois Cavalry, the largest and regarded as the finest regiment in the Army of the Potomac, had been brought back to Washington, largely recruited, and stationed at Seneca, or Muddy Branch, on the river above Washington. There were a number of other detachments of cavalry on the Maryland side, and two regiments of cavalry in Fairfax. General Augur commanded at Washington. Stevenson, at Harper's Ferry, had nine thousand men, who were expected to keep employed in watching the canal and railroad. Sheridan wanted to take the 8th Illinois to the valley, but Augur objected, on the ground that they could not be spared from Washington. Sheridan to Augur. Harper's Ferry, August 8, 1864, the day after Sheridan took formal command of the Army of the Shenandoah. What force have you at Edwards and Nolan's ferries, on the Potomac? Where is Colonel Lazelle posted? Mosby has about two hundred cavalry at or near Point of Rocks. Augur to Sheridan. Washington, D.C., August 3. Colonel Lozelle is posted at Falls Church, Fairfax County, and pickets from the Potomac near Difficult Creek to Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Major Waite, 8th Illinois, has near 600 cavalry along the Potomac from Great Falls to the mouth of the Monocacy, watching the different fords. Sheridan to Augur, August 8th. Can the 8th Illinois Cavalry be spared? I find that the cavalry has been so scattered up here that it is no wonder that it has not done so well. Augur to Sheridan, August 8th. The 8th Illinois is scattered worse than anything you have. The headquarters of six companies are in General Wallace's department. Major Waite, with four companies, is guarding the Potomac between Great Falls and the Monocacy. Another company is near Port Tobacco, and another is with the Army of the Potomac. I do not see how Major Waite's command can be spared, as I have no cavalry to replace it. Sheridan to Augur, August 8th. Your dispatch in reference to the 8th Illinois received. Colonel Lowell left about 600 men of Gregg's Cavalry Division in support of Major Waite. They moved this morning towards the mouth of the Monocacy, and will remain in that vicinity. I will not change the 8th Illinois Cavalry for the present. Augur to Waite, Upper Potomac, August 8th. General Sheraton reports that Mosby, with about 300 men, is at or near the Point of Rocks. Look out well for him. Taylor to Augur, August 10th. General Sheridan has ordered concentration of the 8th Illinois Cavalry at Muddy Branch to picket the river from Monocacy to Washington. The river is well guarded from mouth of Monocacy to Harper's Ferry. Sheridan to Augur, Charlestown, August 18th. 
Keep scouts out in Loudoun County. I have ordered the 8th Illinois Cavalry to rendezvous at Muddy Branch Station. The line of the Potomac should be watched carefully, and information be sent to me should any raiding parties attempt to cross. Augur to wait, August 18th. Mosby is reported to have within reach and control from 400 to 500 men and two pieces of artillery. It will be necessary for you to move with the utmost caution. General Lee apprehended a raid by the cavalry from Washington on the Central Railroad, and instructed me, if possible, to prevent it. The only way that I could do so was to excite continual alarm in their camps. Their outposts were often attacked all along their lines on the same night. This was the only way we could keep them at home. On the same day three or four different detachments would go out, some to operate on Sheridan west of the ridge, some to keep Augur in remembrance of his duty to guard the capital. Sheridan was obviously greatly solicitous about preserving his communications, for he knew that they were weak and a vital necessity for his army. He evidently had some information which increased his anxiety about his rear. One night, when his headquarters were at Berryville, I sent my best scout, John Russell, with two or three men, to reconnoitre, intending to deliver a blow at Sheridan's rear and thus cripple him by cutting off his supplies. John reported long trains passing down along the Valley Pike. I started for the vicinity with some 250 men and two howitzers, one of which became an encumbrance by breaking down. Through Snicker's Gap we crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains after sundown and passed over the Shenandoah River not far from Berryville. I halted at a barn for a good rest, and sent Russell to see what was going on upon the pike. I was asleep when he returned with the news that a very large train was just passing along. The men sprang to their saddles. With Russell and some others I went on in advance to choose the best place for attack, directing Captain William Chapman to bring on the command. About sunrise we were on a knoll from which we could get a good view of a great train of wagons moving along the road and a large drove of cattle with a train. The train was within a hundred yards of us, strongly guarded, but with flankers out. We were obscured by the mist, and, if noticed at all, were doubtless thought to be friends. I sent Russell to hurry up Chapman, who soon arrived. The howitzer was made ready. Richards, with his squadron, was sent to attack the front. William Chapman and Glasscock were to attack them in the rear while Sam Chapman was kept near me in the howitzer. My scheme was nearly ruined by a ludicrous incident, the fun of which is more apparent now than it was then. The howitzer was unlimbered over a yellow jacket's nest. When one of the men had rescued the howitzer, a shell was sent screaming among the wagons, beheading a mule. The shot was like thunder from a clear sky, and the mist added to the enemy's perplexity. This shot was our signal to charge, and we met little resistance. Panic reigned along their line, and I only lost two men killed and three wounded. Before the fighting ended, as I knew that the guard would soon recover from the panic, I had men unhitching mules, burning wagons, and hurrying prisoners and spoils to the rear. There were three hundred and twenty-five wagons, guarded by Kenley's brigade and a large force of cavalry. They had not stopped to find out our numbers. We set a paymaster's wagon on fire, which contained, this we did not know at the time, one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. 
I deployed skirmishers as a mask, until my command, the prisoners, and booty were well across the Shenandoah River. We took between five hundred and six hundred horses, two hundred beeves, and many useful stores, destroyed seventy-five loaded wagons, and carried off two hundred prisoners, including seven officers. The following dispatches illustrate the character and effect of my partisan operations in Sheridan's rear. Stevenson to Sheridan Harper's Ferry, August 17th. Finding all trains threatened by guerrillas, and that they are in force, largely increased by a concentration of several organizations under Mosby, there had been no such concentration. Making the vicinity of Charlestown their theater of operations, I am of opinion that the only safety of our trains and couriers is the posting of a force at Charlestown, with General Duffy at Berryville, and one thousand of Averill's force at Charlestown, with orders by constant scouting to keep the country clear. I think we can send forward everything without loss. As matters now stand, no small party of trains with small guard is safe. Stevenson to Averill, August 17th. Rebels occupy Charlestown, in, in Sheridan's rear, with small force this evening. Attacked party of couriers coming in about five o'clock, capturing two of them. Heard nothing of your command. A large supply train will start from here in the morning, so as to reach Charlestown by six a.m. Have but a small guard. If you could have a force at that point before the train to join escort, and move with it to Berryville, it would secure the safety of the train. Mosby, with his command, is waiting to attack train, and will capture it if possible. The supplies are needed at the front, and will be put through by all means. Lazelle to Augur, Fairfax County, August 9th. I have the honor to report that two parties sent out from this command, consisting of thirty men each, met yesterday afternoon at Fairfax Station, and that while united and acting together were attacked by a force of rebels, variously estimated at from forty to fifty men, and were completely dispersed and routed. Citizens report that Mosby himself was in command of the rebels. So far as known, our loss is as follows. Captain J. H. Fleming, 16th New York Cavalry, missing. Thirty-three men missing. Thirty-nine horses missing. The number of the killed and wounded is not yet known. Captain Fleming, who at the time of the attack had command of the party, is reported killed. Captain Harrison to Kelly. Martinsburg, August 14th. Several of our scouts here say they cannot get through to Sheridan, Mosby having driven them back. Lazelle to De Russi, Fairfax County, August 24th. The attack at Annandale has ceased, and the rebels withdrew, perhaps with the intention of attacking some other part of my picket line. The attacking party is said to have consisted of from less than two hundred to three hundred, even to five hundred men, with two pieces of artillery, all under Mosby. Augur to Sheridan, Washington, September 1st. Major Waite has returned from Upperville in the vicinity of Snicker's Gap, reports no rebel forces in that vicinity except Mosby's. Lazelle to Augur, September 1st. Last night at about 10.30 o'clock one of our pickets was attacked near this camp. The attacking party was driven off, with a loss to the rebels of one horse, and it is believed one man wounded. 
About the same hour the picket posts on the Braddock Road and on the road to Falls Church in Annandale were attacked simultaneously and driven in. This morning at about 6 a.m., one of our pickets, about half a mile west of the village of Falls Church, was attacked and one vedette captured. Late today two of our picket posts between here and Annandale were attacked at about the same time, by a force of between twenty and thirty men. Five men were captured and seven horses, while four men escaped. At about the same hour the picket post on the Little River Pike, towards Fairfax Courthouse, from Annandale, was attacked, and one sergeant and a horse were wounded, two men and three horses captured. Augur to Lazelle September 1st. I have reliable information that Mosby is still lying in the woods in front of your lines, and expects to make an attack tonight somewhere upon it. Please have all your men on duty notified of this, that they may be on their guard and take proper precautions. If not successful tonight, he proposes to remain until he strikes some important blow. Gansevoort to Augur. Fairfax, September 19th. Information considered very reliable has reached here today that in the skirmish with the 13th New York Cavalry, on the last scout of that regiment, Colonel Mosby was seriously wounded, a pistol bullet striking the handle of the pistol in his belt and glancing off in his groin. He was able, however, to ride off, but soon fainted, and was carried in a wagon to a place of safety. Lazelle to Augur, September 29th. Private Henry Smith of Company H, 13th New York Cavalry, is the man who wounded him, Mosby. It was a bold deed, and Smith deserves credit for it. Sheridan to Augur, Strasburg, September 21st. I wish you to send to Winchester all the available troops possible, to the number of between 4,000 to 5,000, without delay, to relieve the troops left there to guard my communication. If necessity should require, they can be returned at short notice. Stevenson to Stanton, Harper's Ferry, September 26th. Both of my last courier parties were attacked by rebel cavalry dispersed part of them, capturing the first party at Strasburg, the second at a point between Charlestown and Bunker Hill. Message number 31 was sent by both parties, and both have failed. I shall try another duplicate tonight. The country between this and Sheridan yesterday and today seemed to be alive with parties of rebel guerrillas and cavalry. Last night they attacked ambulances, with scout of seventeen men between this and Charlestown severely wounded sergeant of 16th Pennsylvania Cavalry. I doubt if we should be able to get any dispatches through without sending much larger body of cavalry than I can get hold of. I have but small force for such duty, and it is badly worn down. Edwards to Neal, Martinsburg, Winchester, October 2nd. The train that left Martinsburg arrived here last night. I have no forces here to escort it to the front except four hundred cavalry, and one hundred of these cannot be relied on. Also some straggling infantry, without organization, numbering three hundred men. I have detained the train here on account of insufficiency in men to properly guard it. A train of its size to go through the country where it has to should have an escort of at least two thousand men with it. Captain Blazer of the Independent Scouts comes in this morning and reports Mosby's command hovering in the neighborhood of Newtown. 
no escort with dispatches can get through with less than five hundred cavalry. Stevenson to Stanton, Harper's Ferry, October 1st. There are no organized troops of enemy in Valley this side of Stanton, except Mosby's guerrillas. Neil to Stanton, Martinsburg, September 30th. About three hundred or four hundred guerrillas are operating between Winchester and Bunker Hill. I do not consider my post safe unless I have stronger force to protect the large amount of government property rapidly collecting here. As the Federal dispatches said, I was wounded on September 14, four days before the Battle of Winchester. But it was hardly the bold deed Lazelle described. Two of my men, Tom Love and Guy Broadwater, and myself met five of the enemy's cavalry in Fairfax. As we were within a few yards of each other, we all fired at the same time. Two of the enemy's horses fell dead, and I was seriously wounded. The other three cavalry then fled full speed with love and broadwater after them, until I called them back to my assistance. We then left the other men under the dead horses, and I was carried, for safety, to my father's home near Lynchburg. Captain William Chapman commanded my battalion during my absence. On the day after I was wounded, four hundred of Sheridan's cavalry came over the Blue Ridge at night, expecting, by aid of a spy, to capture a good many of my men. The expedition was commanded by General George H. Chapman of Indianapolis. He caught several of my men and started back, with Captain Chapman in pursuit of the general. Captain Chapman did not go on his trail but took a road running along the top of the Blue Ridge in order to intercept the Union troops before they got to the Shenandoah River. It was an excessively hot day, and the Union troops had ridden all night. The general had heard of my being wounded and may have calculated that my command was disorganized or would be less active. So when the troops reached Snicker's Gap, all lay down in the shade and went to sleep. Captain Chapman soon came plunging down the mountainside like an avalanche, and was firing among the men before they were awake. They had not expected an attack to come like a bolt from the sky, and the attack caused a general stampede. All the prisoners were recaptured, and many of the enemy were killed, wounded, and captured. General Chapman returned to camp and wrote in his report, About an hour had elapsed, and the men had mostly fallen asleep when there were suddenly charged upon by a force of from fifty to eighty of the enemy, and, being stampeded by the surprise, a number were killed, wounded, and captured before I reached the scene of the encounter with the main body. They had approached the gap across the mountains and charged down an easy slope, and they retired the same way, pursued for two miles by my men. It was near sundown and in the exhausted state of men and horses I did not deem further pursuit expedient. Captain Thompson had captured twelve of the enemy, but they were recaptured. From citizens I ascertained that Mosby was wounded some time ago, and had gone to Richmond. Judging from indications, I should estimate the force operating under Mosby and his colleague at from two hundred to two hundred fifty. If they have any encampment it must be in the neighborhood and beyond Upperville. It will be observed that General Chapman did not say that he was bushwhacked. But these constant raids aroused the Federal officers to such an extent that on September 22 they attempted to take revenge by hanging some of my men. 
An eyewitness described the scene in a Confederate newspaper as follows. The Yankee cavalry, under General Torbert, entered the town, Front Royal, and drove out the four Confederates on picket, who fell back to Milford. At this latter point General Wickham met the Yankee force and repulsed it. A part of Mosby's men, under Captain Chapman, annoyed the enemy very much on their return to Front Royal, which, with the mortification of their defeat by Wickham, excited them to such savage doings as to prompt them to murder six of our men who fell into their hands. Anderson, Overby, Love, and Rhodes were shot, and Carter and one other, whose name our informant did not recollect, were hung to the limb of a tree at the entrance of the village. Henry Rhodes was quite a youth, living with his widowed mother and supporting her by his labor. He did not belong to Mosby's command. His mother entreated them to spare the life of her son, and treat him as a prisoner of war, but the demons answered by wetting their sabres on some stones and declaring they would cut his head off and hers too if she came near. They ended by shooting him in her presence. The murders were committed on the twenty-second day of September. Generals Torbert, Merritt, and Custer being present. It is said that Torbert and Merritt turned the prisoners over to Custer for the purpose of their execution. An account in the Richmond Examiner was as follows. On Friday last, Mosby's men attacked a wagon train, which was protected by a whole brigade, so that their charge was repelled with the loss of six prisoners. Two of their prisoners the Yankees immediately hung to a neighboring tree, placing around their necks placards bearing the inscription, hung in retaliation for the Union officer killed after he had surrendered, the fate of Mosby's men. The other four of our prisoners were tied to stakes and mercilessly shot through the skull, each one individually. One of those hung was a famous soldier named Overby, from Georgia. When the rope was placed round his neck by his inhuman captors, he told them that he was one of Mosby's men, and that he was proud to die as a Confederate soldier, and that his death was sweetened with the assurance that Colonel Mosby would swing in the wind ten Yankees for every man they murdered. This action on the part of the enemy led to my writing the following letter. November 11, 1864. Major General P. H. Sheridan, commanding U.S. forces in the valley. General. Some time in the month of September, during my absence from my command, six of my men who had been captured by your forces were hung and shot in the streets of Front Royal, by order and in the immediate presence of Brigadier General Custer. Since then another, captured by a Colonel Powell on a plundering expedition into Rappahannock, shared a similar fate. A label affixed to the coat of one of the murdered men declared that this would be the fate of Mosby and all his men. Since the murder of my men, not less than seven hundred prisoners, including many officers of high rank, captured from your army by this command have been forwarded to Richmond. But the execution of my purpose of retaliation was deferred, in order as far as possible, to confine its operation to the men of Custer and Powell. Accordingly, on the sixth instant, seven of your men were, by my order, executed on the Valley Pike, your highway of travel. Hereafter any prisoners falling into my hands will be treated with the kindness due to their condition, unless some new act of barbarity shall compel me, reluctantly, to adopt a line of policy repugnant to humanity. 
Very respectfully, your obedient servant, John S. Mosby, Lieutenant Colonel. No further acts of barbarity were committed on my men. Although Sheridan defeated early in the battle at Winchester, on September 19, 1864, and was urged by Grant to move on south, press early, and end the war, he really made no farther progress and spent the winter, with an overwhelming force, where he had won a victory in September. On September 23rd, after Fisher's Hill, Grant had telegraphed him, Keep on, and you will cause the fall of Richmond. On the 29th, Sheridan wrote to Grant from Harrisonburg, My impression is that most of the troops which Early had left passed through these mountains to Charlottesville. Kershaw's division came to his assistance, and, I think, passed along the west base of the mountain to Waynesboro. The advance of my infantry is at Mount Crawford, eight miles south of Harrisonburg. From the most reliable accounts, Early's army was completely broken up and dispirited. It will be exceedingly difficult for me to carry the infantry over the mountains and strike at the central road. I cannot accumulate stores to do so, and think it best to take some position near Front Royal and operate with cavalry and infantry. In reply to Grant's dispatch a few days before, he had said, I am now about eighty miles from Martinsburg, and find it exceedingly difficult to supply this army. Grant rejoined, Your victories have caused the greatest consternation. If you can possibly subsist your army to the front for a few days more, do it, and make a great effort to destroy the roads about Charlottesville, and the canal wherever your cavalry can reach. If this advice had been acted on, Sheridan's army would have been thrown into the rear of General Lee. Grant did not, of course, mean that Sheridan should stop at Charlottesville. He wanted him first to gain a foothold there, accumulate supplies by the Orange Railroad, and make it a new starting point for further operations. The Orange and Alexandria Railroad runs south by Gordonsville and Charlottesville to Lynchburg. From Manassas Junction, twenty-five miles from Washington, a branch road runs west through the Blue Ridge to Front Royal and Strasburg. It was assumed that if the Northern Army held the Manassas Gap line, my command would retire south of the Rappahannock. In this way a double purpose would be effected. A more convenient line of supplies would be secured, as well as the annexation of more territory to the United States. The sequel shows that I had not been consulted. Without securing the fruits of his victory, on October 6th Sheridan began his retrograde movement, no doubt much to Grant's chagrin. On October 3rd Grant telegraphed Sheridan, You may take up such position in the valley as you think can and ought to be held, and send all the force not required for this immediately here. I will direct the railroad to be pushed towards Front Royal, so that you may send our troops back that way. Halleck to Sheridan October 3rd. The Orange and Alexandria Road was repaired to the Rappahannock, in the expectation that you would pursue the enemy through the mountains and receive your supplies from Culpeper. By General Grant's order, the workmen have been changed to the Manassas Gap Road, which will be opened to Front Royal. On October 4th, Halleck said to Grant, with reference to the opening and holding the railroad from Alexandria to Front Royal, in order to keep up my communication on this line to Manassas Gap and Shenandoah Valley, 
it will be necessary to send south all rebel inhabitants between that line and the Potomac, and also to clean out Mosby's gang of robbers, who have so long infested that district of country, and I respectfully suggest that Sheridan's cavalry should be required to accomplish this object before it is sent elsewhere. The two small regiments, 13th and 16th New York, stationed in Fairfax, under General Augur, have been so often cut up by Mosby's band that they are cowed and useless for that purpose. If these dispositions are approved and carried out, it will not be necessary to keep so large a force at Harper's Ferry and guarding the Canal and Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. By sending some of Sheridan's troops to Grant, it was calculated that through the sudden augmentation of Grant's strength, he could make a successful assault on Lee at Petersburg before Early's troops could reach him, or to extend his line so as to seize the South Side Railroad. This combination was defeated. The following dispatch, October 4th, from Stevenson at Harper's Ferry to Edwards at Winchester, is significant as showing the dangers that beset Sheridan's line of supply. Escorts with dispatches have to cut their way, and generally lose half their men. I think a train of two hundred wagons should have an escort of one thousand infantry and five hundred cavalry going to the front. The train going out this morning will have nearly fifteen hundred escort. I do not think I overestimate the danger between here and there. Although I was still on crutches, I had now resumed command of my men. On October 4th a body of infantry, with construction force, came up on the Manassas Road. They could not have anticipated any resistance, as they had only a single company of cavalry for couriers, and General Augur did not accompany them. The next day I attacked this force, and General Lee reported the results to the Secretary of War. Jaffin's Bluff October ninth, 1864. Honorable James A. Seddon, Secretary of War. Colonel Mosby reports that a body of about a thousand of the enemy advanced up the Manassas Road on the 4th, with trains of cars loaded with railroad material, and occupied Salem and Rectortown. He attacked them at Salem, defeating them, capturing fifty prisoners, all their baggage, camp equipage, stores, etc., and killed and wounded a considerable number. His loss, two wounded. The enemy is now entrenched at Rectortown with two long trains of cars. The railroad is torn up and bridges burned in their rear, and all communications cut. All work repairing the railroad was stopped, and both the soldiers and workmen went to building stockades for their own safety. A courier was sent immediately to Gordonsville with a telegram to General Lee informing him of the movement on the railroad. In reply, General Lee said, Your success at Salem gives great satisfaction. Do all in your power to prevent reconstruction of the road. The following undated fragment of letter to Mrs. Mosby probably refers to this action. At Salem, and completely routed them. Captured fifty prisoners, and all their baggage, tents, rations, etc. Yesterday in a fight near the plains, my horse or rather yours, ran entirely through the Yankees in a charge. He was badly shot and tumbled over me, but we whipped them. They are camped all along the railroad. Bowie, Ames, have both been killed. I don't think the Yankees will be here long. I will bring you all over as soon as they leave the Manassas Railroad. 
The intentions of the enemy were now plainly developed, and it was my duty to do all I could to defeat them. To do so with my slender means looked a good deal like going to sea in a saucer. The troops at Salem fled to Rectortown, where the railroad runs through a gorge. Here they took shelter. On the 6th and 7th we shelled them to keep them on the defensive. My guns could not be depressed sufficiently to do them much damage, but the enemy kept under cover. On the 7th of October, from Woodstock, Sheridan sent the following dispatch to General Grant. I commenced moving back yesterday morning. I would have preferred sending troops to you by the Baltimore and Ohio Road. It would have been the quickest and most concealed way of sending them. The keeping open of the road to Front Royal will require large guards to protect it against a very small number of partisan troops. At the same time, Sheridan requested Halleck not to send railroad transportation to Front Royal, as he might be delayed. It will be remembered that in his dispatch to General Grant on September 29th he had suggested falling back to Front Royal and operating from there as a base. Unless he used the railroad, his supplies would have to be brought by wagons from Harper's Ferry. On the same day he said to Halleck, I have been unable to communicate more frequently on account of the operations of guerrillas in my rear. They have attacked every party, and I have sent my dispatches with a view of economizing as much as possible. Sheridan went to Front Royal to see to the embarkation of ten thousand troops for Grant, but he found nothing but a roadbed without iron. The troops remained there for three days waiting for Augur to build the road, but he could not do it. His troops had all they could do to take care of themselves, for my men were rather active those days. In the following dispatch to Halleck, Sheridan admitted that he did not use the railroad because Augur could not repair it. October 12th. I have ordered the Sixth Corps, except one brigade now at Winchester, to march to Alexandria tomorrow morning. I have ordered General Augur to concentrate all his forces at Manassas Junction or Bull Run until he hears from me. He could not complete the railroad to Front Royal without additional forces from me, and to give him that force to do the work and transport the troops by rail to Alexandria would require more time. End of chapter.